Romans 8, beginning with verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed for us. For the creation waits with eager expectation for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay, and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we, while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But that very Spirit intercedes with inexpressible groans. And God, He who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us this morning to open up our eyes to your Word to open up our ears to hear you, to open up our hearts to receive your message so that we may be transformed into the likeness of your Son, to be your people and to carry your word into the world. In your Son's name we pray, amen. One of the uh, more memorable experiences of my life was uh, going to uh, basically boot camp. We called it field training technically, uh, but it was more or less boot camp. Not the worst experience of my life, not the most fun experience of my life either. Um, and you know all the stereotypes of what's involved there, but uh, the thing I remember maybe uh, best of all is just finally being done with it. Uh, and you get on the bus to go home and you have this sense of relief. <laughs> finally, that's over. And it didn't necessarily mean that kind of some of the things that you had to do made it still made any more sense to you than before, but you just had this moment of, well, I can look back on it, and there it was, and it's finished, and I have work to do ahead of me, and I can have a, a vision for that, what that will be like, but I just now I'm in this moment of, of clarity and triumph. The passage that we just read in Romans is sort of that moment of, of triumph and clarity in, uh, in Paul's letter to the Romans, first of all, because he is bringing to a climax all that he's been talking about, and he gives this vision of what the gospel means for us. Our salvation, that means that the world itself can be a part of the glory of God. So he's this great vision for the meaning of all that he's telling the church in Rome. But also, but also, he's talking about this moment of clarity and triumph in which we understand the suffering in our lives and all that we've gone through and all that our friends and neighbors go through. In which uh, it, it now makes sense. Didn't mean it was necessarily good, but it makes sense 
in the context of what God is going to do for the whole world. And so it's this moment of, of, of certain hope, as he will put it. You know, some of the hardest questions that we as Christians face relate to what Paul is talking about here um, with regard to suffering. Why does God, what does God have to say about suffering? Why does God let people suffer? And uh, we, we might have heard critics of Christianity say, or we might have even said ourselves, surely God, a good God wouldn't let us suffer in this way. But suffering is real, so God must not be real. And sometimes we as a church haven't done a good job of answering those questions because we have given sort of bad, flippant uh, one-liners that don't really help and aren't really biblical. We say things like, well, everything happens for a reason that's not in the Bible. Uh, or we might say, God won't give you more than you can handle. That's also not exactly in the Bible. And, and if those things have helped you, that's, that's wonderful. But for many people, that comes as almost a painful accusation. And it certainly doesn't give us a full picture of what God intends to do with the very real struggle and hardship that we face. Those answers just aren't good enough. Sometimes, in fact, we may have thought this way. Um, you know, I'm suffering. God must be punishing me or God must be disciplining me. Well, that can happen. Uh, we're the Bible tells us that God uh, disciplines those that he loves, but there seems to be an awful lot of meaningless suffering in this world that has nothing to do with God's discipline. And so if we want to go that route, that might be a partial answer for some of the things that we face, but it certainly isn't uh, an answer for the meaningless suffering that we see in the world and in our own lives. Paul has a better answer. He has a better answer than our easy throwaway one-liners that we say at people. And he has a better answer than um, our attempts sometimes to, to blame ourselves uh, or to say that, well, this is, this is for this specific reason. Paul has a different answer. Paul says that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed for us. Your suffering is very real, Paul says, but the glory that you will receive is even more real. So much so that as horrific as your suffering may be, the glory of God will be even greater. This isn't a pat answer. This isn't just a nice kind of feeling that Paul has about what might happen one day. No, Paul says that he has considered this, and the word that he uses is a serious word. Um, it's not just he's thought about it. It, uh, or he kind of feels good about it, he's reckoned it out. He's added it up. He has calculated it. And he knows that the glory that God will bring is not even worth comparing with the very real suffering that we know. Now, we might want to say to Paul, now, Paul, are you sure about that? Because the sufferings of this present time seem to be pretty great. More people were killed in the 20th century than in any other in history. We've invented new, more efficient ways to kill other human beings than ever in history with the gas chamber and the nuclear bomb. ISIS is beheading Christians in the Middle East. There are 22 billion people who live on less than $2 a day in our world. We're in the middle of a weekend where we should be remembering uh, the scars of war in our own lives and those who have died in service of their country 
and their suffering and the suffering of their families surely is great. And we ourselves know sickness and death and struggle and defeat and pain and loss. Paul, are you sure that the sufferings of this present time aren't worth being compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us? And Paul will say to that, yes. Because Paul, too, knew suffering and sickness and death and defeat and pain and loss. But he who had this encounter with Jesus, who had been taken up in heaven and had seen God, says that the glory that is coming, the glory that is coming isn't even worth comparing to this very real suffering and pain and death and loss that we know. Paul says that this glory is going to be revealed uh, for us, is the way I read it to you earlier, and I think the best translation. Some of your translations might say that the glory will be revealed in us or to us, and those are possible translations. But when we think about glory being revealed in us, a lot of what, of, what we think is you know, sort of a nice spiritual feeling. Um, glory will be revealed in us. I'll feel good about my life. Well, we will experience joy, but it's much more than just feeling good about our spiritual condition. And sometimes when we hear, and you might have a translation that says glory revealed to us, that seems a little distant. It's sort of like, well, there's some nice glory over there that's happening, but I'm just sort of looking at it. I'm not involved in it. That's not what Paul is saying because the word that Paul uses mean, means glory that has been revealed into us or toward us or among us or for us. The idea is that it's not just a feeling. It's not just something that we observe over there. It's something that we participate in. The glory that we will receive, the glory that we will receive will be in us and through us and death and pain and suffering will be undone. The glory of the new creation will be all around us. Paul says that the creation itself waits with eager expectation for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, the world, the, the earth that God made and that goes through suffering now, can't wait for our salvation. It is longing for it and expecting it because that's how the creation itself is going to be made new where suffering and death are no more and we live in a world that's made how God wanted it to be. What Paul wants us to think of here is the slavery of the children in Egypt. Notice that word that he uses that the Creation has been subjected to the bondage of decay. Those are slavery words. And he wants us to think about the captivity of the people of God in Egypt. You remember that the sons of Jacob, the tribe of Jacob, who would later be called, or who would be called Israel, go, they go in, in the midst of a famine, go into Egypt, this little family tribe, and in slavery in Egypt over the years, they grow into this great people, who God will lead out thousands by thousands into a new land that he's going to give them. They're subjected to slavery, but out of the slavery and out of the suffering is going to come a glory that is far beyond 
That is far beyond where they started. And Paul wants us to see that the world itself is like that situation of, of Israel. The world is in slavery to decay. The world is in bondage to sickness and death. But freedom is going to come. And that freedom is going to come when God makes us into new creation, uh, a, new cre- a new creation and puts us on a world that has been made right. The glory to be revealed in the world depends on the glory to be revealed in us. And this should take you back to, again, back to the Old Testament and beyond Exodus, take you back to Genesis. Because what did God do when he made Adam and Eve? He placed them in the garden and he gave them the job of taking care of it. That's what we're made to do. We're made to take care of the world that God has given us. And when God makes the world again right, we are going to be the ones who take care of it. It is we as glorified people who will take care of God's glorified world. And now for us, in this world that we know now, we still have, as Christians, basically that that same role. We're told that we're we're made in the image of God. What does that mean? Well, to be made in the image of God is to show what God looks like to the world. So it's kind of like having an angled mirror where God reflects His glory onto us and we shine it out into the world. And it works in reverse too. And this is where Paul is leading us. Because we bring the glory of the world, but also the pain and the suffering of the world, and we reflect that back to God as we pray and as we live. That's part of what it means to be God's image bearers. Paul says that the creation can't wait for this to happen. There's an eager expectation. There's an eager longing, some of your translations might say. The word that's actually used here, literally it means away from head thinking, okay? That seems a little strange, and Paul's not saying that the creation is kind of thinking outside of itself or, or, or not thinking properly. The image is of like someone stepping on their, on their tiptoes and looking toward the horizon, and it's almost like their brain is out of their body because their brain can't wait for what is coming, and we're stretching and looking. And Paul says that the world, the creation, is waiting like that for our salvation. Is waiting with eager longing because it can't, just can't wait for it to happen. It's kind of like, now your uh, Facebook newsfeed might be a little different than mine, but I've seen a lot of people over the last couple of days posting about going to the Taylor Swift concert in Baton Rouge. She's a country music singer, if you didn't know, that especially uh, teenage girls like. And so all of these girls are going to the, going to the Taylor Swift concert, and what happens is they they just can't. They're straining. They're looking up. They want to see. They want to see Taylor Swift. Um, Maybe you don't know who Taylor Swift is. Think of the Beatles or Elvis back in the day at their height. People would crush and crowd around because they just wanted to touch Elvis. They just wanted to see him. Or they'd get around the dressing room where the Beatles couldn't even, couldn't even get out, right? Because they, they just couldn't wait. They couldn't wait to see him. And the girls would faint and pass out and, all kind, and scream and holler and, and cry just so they could see you know John Paul, George, and Ringo or maybe Elvis. Well... That's what the world is like waiting on our salvation. That's what Paul says. Waiting with eager longing for the children of God to be revealed because that's when the glory will come. Now, that's what they're waiting on. That's what it's waiting on. But the world's not there yet. And Paul tells us that the creation, he goes now to another metaphor, away from eager longing to something else. It's kind of similar. 
the creation, he says, the earth itself is um, groaning in labor pains until now. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor until now. Some of your translations make this more clear than others, but what Paul is calling us to think of is a woman giving birth. He says that the earth, creation that God made, is like a woman giving birth, and that new life is going to come out of this suffering. That God is going to do something new, bring something new after, out of all of the pain. Now, I'm not an expert on, uh, on the childbirth process or experience by any means, uh, but I asked a few folks who are, my wife included, and, and what she said and what several other women said was that you know, when a child is born, even after all of that suffering and pain, um, when the child arrives, it's this moment uh, where all of that is, at least for a time, kind of forgotten, and you just are in awe and celebrating this new life that has come. That's what Paul is talking about that the glory that's going to be revealed is like this new life that has burst on the scene out of all of the agony. And so the creation is groaning in hope, groaning knowing that new life is coming. And not only does the world groan, we groan with it. So the world groans and we groan with it. Paul says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So the world groans and we as Christians groan with the world waiting on our adoption. The new creation is coming like a child to be born and we will be Um, the bringers of the new creation, partakers, the caretakers of the new creation because we are going to be adopted as God's children. What does that mean? What does it mean to groan with creation? Well, it means that we as Christians are are called to be honest about what's broken in our world. We're not to be Pollyannas who just say that everything is great. And we're not supposed to be Stoics who pretend that uh, we don't go through pain. We're called to... Be there with the broken places and broken people of the world. And part of that is, is, involves calling sin, sin, and being realistic about suffering and what is wrong, but not from a distance where we just accuse people of wrongdoing over there. It means that we are there with those who are suffering and mourning the consequences of sin. And we're saying, Lord, come and make something right of this. Bring your forgiveness and bring your reconciliation. So let me ask you today, who's groaning in your life? Who needs to know that God is there with them? Part of your job as a Christian is to just be there with them. To just be there and groan and suffer with them. And yes, sometimes we have certain things that we need to do to bring healing and wholeness, but sometimes our job is to just be there with the person who's suffering. And there's great power in that, as you may well have experienced for yourself on on one side or the other. To just go and and be with the world in its pain. Paul goes on to say this, we can do that. We can suffer with others because we're not hopeless. We're people of hope. We can suffer with others because we know we're not going to stay there. Because God is going to bring 
this new creation, this new life. Paul says this, For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We're not supposed to be, we're, we're not to be naive. That's not what he's saying. Hope is realism. Hope is knowing that just as suffering is very real, um, God's salvation is even more real. That God will make something, that God will bring new creation into this world where uh, we so desperately need that. We know that, and we know that because what we, of what we have seen him do in Jesus. Uh, bishop uh, Leslie Newbigin, who was a bishop of the Church of South India, was once asked if he was an optimist or a pessimist. And he replied, I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. We've got to ask ourselves, do we actually believe that? Do we actually believe that God raised Jesus? Because if God raised Jesus, that means that we can abandon our hopelessness and rest assured knowing that God is going to do what God is going to do. That God will bring salvation to his people and that God will make a new world. You know, a lot of us in the church, we wallow in hopelessness, not least about the situation of the church itself. Some of you may have heard about this new Pew Research Center poll that in essence said that Christianity is declining much faster in America than we realized. It's declining by something on average like 3% um, over the last uh, seven years. And, And after this article came out, you heard on the radio and all these articles, people wringing their hands and whining and fearful about, well, what's going to happen to the church? You know, we, the, the church in America is going to decline and everything's going to go be terrible. And what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? There's all this fear not, and, and hopelessness. And look, I don't know what our church is going to look like in 20 years. I don't know what the church in America is going to look like in 20 years. But I know that God raised Jesus from the dead. And if God raised Jesus from the dead, then we shouldn't live in hopelessness. We should live with confidence that God won't abandon us. Because he's brought his love to us through the gift of his own son. Uh, Bishop Swanson a year ago, uh, our bishop, Bishop Swanson, put it, this way in his Pentecost sermon. You know, people talk about, you know, I've seen all the signs of the church's decline. And he said this, you may have read the signs, but I've read the book. And the book says that the gates of hell shall not, shall not prevail against the church. Folks, we got to be people of hope. People who know that God raised Jesus from the dead. And so those fears and anxieties shouldn't occupy us. Yes, we need to spread the good news. We can only do that when we're people of joy and hope and confidence who know that God is working in us and know that we can trust God to bring that to completion. And that's the way that you can actually groan appropriately with the world. Because we don't groan as people who have no hope, but we suffer with others knowing that God is with us. And indeed, God is with us because Paul says that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't even know how to pray as we ought, but the very Spirit intercedes with groans that words can express. And God, He who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
Notice how this works. The world is groaning in labor pains. We groan with it uh, as, as God's hopeful people. And the Spirit groans with us. God is with us as we suffer in hope with the world. Why can God do this? Well, one, He's named as the one who searches our hearts. And we don't even know how to pray. We don't know what's best for us. We don't know the future. We don't know the, uh, the depths of our own, of our own um, psyches and souls. But God does because he searches our hearts and he knows us. And so when we don't even have the words, God can know us beyond the words. Intercedes with groans that words can express. Now look, it's Pentecost, and when we think about Pentecost, we think about the great uh, acts of the Spirit in the church. Now at least in Acts 2, when God sends the Spirit and the people go out preaching, and we think of all the mighty deeds that people in the church have done over the years, and absolutely we should celebrate those these, this day. But that's not the only way that the Spirit works. In fact, what Paul tells us here in Romans 8 is that the Spirit can work with you and if you can do one thing. If you can groan, can, it, can any of y'all groan? Some of y'all are good at groaning. Now, I'm not looking. People think sometimes that the preacher's looking at you, and it's, I'm not looking at anybody in particular. We all can groan. I can groan. I, I, and I like people like that. I like surly malcontents who are honest about the things that are bad that they don't like and are willing to say it. I like that. Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit is right there with that person. Now, we shouldn't grumble and distract from others, but we can, we can lament, we can complain, we can say when things are wrong. If you can do that, then the Spirit can work with you because the Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words can't express. The creation is groaning, the world is going wrong. We can groan with it, though groaning as hopeful people and not hopeless people, right? And the Spirit is right there with us. God is right there with us, groaning and suffering with us. The answer to the question of why God lets allow suffering. Um, well, the answer that we're given isn't so much God allows suffering for X, Y, and Z reasons. The answer that Paul gives is that God is right there suffering with us. The Father has sent the Son to suffer on our behalf, and the Spirit is right there in the middle of our moans, groans, gripes, and complaints, and is sustaining us and is giving us life and is giving us hope in the middle of what seems like hopelessness. The promise is that God will be with us and that God will be with his creation groaning through the Spirit because we can trust in the promise of God to bring us glory and to bring his world glory through our groaning. Let's pray.